Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use and wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Hello again, this is Dr. Dyke Drummond at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington with the next edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. And just before we start, I've got a super special guest for you who you're really going to enjoy. But real quick, take a big, deep breath with me. Let's pop out of the whirlwind. Big, deep breath in. And as you exhale, just let go of anything that doesn't need to be here right now. And come out of the whirlwind with me. Step out. Let's talk a little bit about what it's like to be a doctor. Today's guest on the podcast is Dr. Gita Pensa, MD. She's an emergency room physician and associate professor at Brown. And perhaps even more importantly to our purposes, she is the developer, producer, originator, author of a gorgeous podcast called Doctors in Litigation, The L Word. Doctors in Litigation, The L Word. You've got to check it out. It's a labor of love for her. She tells her story about the most egregious lawsuit I've ever heard, which she's going to tell us about on this podcast. But she also has done this as a labor of love. That is This American Life Quality Audio Production. It's really beautiful. It's self-encapsulated into a course. Helps a lot of different doctors tell their litigation stories and talks about all sorts of aspects to being sued, what it's like to work with malpractice companies, what it's like to listen to people lie on the stand and all that kind of stuff. So, Dr. Pensa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for that probably overly kind introduction, but it's very nice to be here. Thank you. We'll, we will let our listeners judge, okay? So we met a few weeks ago and had a chance to talk. And what I'd like to do, since you're going to be on several podcasts here, we're going to be talking and this is going to be the only time we get a helping of you. And so what I'd like to do is just start at the beginning of your journey through the legal issues And again, I always have an international audience. These are issues that are most likely quite specific to the United States of America because things that happen in Canada and England and Australia and other places like that, and I've just stuck with the English-speaking world, they're very different. They don't have anywhere near as many lawyers as we do, and they have a national risk management program. And I've worked with those people before. So it's American-specific, but would you please... And we'll do this in an abbreviated manner because it lasts, what, 12 years? 12 years. It's a 12-year story we're going to tell in the next few minutes. So if you could please, if you could please like wind us back in time into the beginning of this story and I'll just pop questions now and then. Sure. So let me take you back to 2006. I was an attending, a young attending. I'd been about five years out from residency at that time and I was working in a community emergency department as a nocturnist. I work nights. So I was usually the only doctor in the hospital, uh, run upstairs for codes. I would run upstairs to deliver a baby because OB was in house. I would come back to the emergency department. It was very stressful, but it was also what I felt like I was trained to do. I found it very exciting and I, I really, I was really enjoying it. And then one night I took care of a young woman who's 31 and she 
suffice to say, came in with a very confusing presentation. I spent a lot of time with her. I spent a lot of time with her husband trying to sort out what was going on. I called the consultants. I imaged her. I My chart reflects that I saw this person probably five or six times during her emergency department stay, assessing, 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 reassessing. Had a very, very close time for follow-up. She was going to see that specialist that morning, three hours after I wound up discharging her from the emergency department. But she never made it there. She went home and an hour later, she had a terrible cerebellar stroke. And then she was taken to a tertiary care center. So I didn't even know anything had happened until I was named in a lawsuit a few months later. And I was completely bored. What was it that eventually happened to her? What was the diagnosis? Eventually, the diagnosis was a vertebral artery dissection. And what had happened was she had had cervical surgery, not immediately before that, but maybe a couple of weeks she was home recovering. And when she came in, her presentation was that of eye pain. And Oh, wow. <laughs> and she actually, it was very interesting because it was tied over with this history of migraines and it was very confusing. But the neck was no complaints about pain in the neck or anything like that. And absolutely no other neurologic findings. Then her pain resolved. And so it was a vertebral artery dissection too. So even if you work backwards thinking like, oh, maybe she had referred pain from a carotid, but it wasn't a carotid. It didn't make any sense. So anyway, it didn't make any sense. And it completely blindsided me. And even 12 years later, with however many experts I can think of having looked at this from every single angle, there is no way to actually connect the dots in a way that makes sense. But nevertheless, what I wound up being sued for was obviously a delayed diagnosis and failure to order an MRI, MRA, which was actually at that time, back in 2006, that's really the way that we diagnosed it. We weren't doing CTA or artery infection. And we go all day, I can talk about this case like all day, because it's sort of, it's a very interesting case from a medical perspective. In hindsight, there was no way to connect the dots, you know, as I said, experts have looked at this case. There's no way to make it sense, which I now accept. But at the time, I found incredibly frustrating. And that's a whole podcast unto itself of this emotional journey from blaming myself and feeling, being made to feel that I was at fault for this event to then coming to terms with what happened being something that I had absolutely no way to predict. And absolutely no way to intercept. It just wasn't anything that was in my power. But nevertheless, at the beginning of this whole 12 year journey, I didn't know any of those things. I didn't understand what was happening. And I certainly didn't understand what was happening in a medical legal sense because nobody had ever talked to me about what to do once the finger was pointed at you. We had had risk management lectures, all sorts of and how to chart properly, documenting how to stay out of trouble, but literally not one word about what to happen once you were named. And the implication of that, in retrospect, I think is that if you're a good doctor, you don't need to know that. So when you are served with papers, it means you did something wrong. It means you did something wrong. And especially in the United States, I just want to call to our international audience, especially in the United States, you don't have to do anything wrong in order to get sued. Lawyers are going to look at the state of the patient, which is a tragedy 
It's an absolute tragedy, but they're going to look at the state of the patient and the state of the potential settlement and choose based on the potential upside of winning a case. And this was a very tempting case because it was a young defendant. It's all about the optics. So it was a young defendant who had damages, who lived, who had both economic and personal damages. And so not to, you know, not to fast forward in our story, but their original demand was around a $28 million mark. And I was the sole defendant. So here I am, this young attending who had no idea about thing one, about the litigation system, finding myself as the sole defendant, the sole physician defendant, my group was also named, but my sole physician defendant in a $28 million case. And I had seen this before. I had seen front page news of multi-million dollar verdicts against physicians in our state, called them out by name, publicly shaming them. You never hear the doctor side of the story. And I just, I, I didn't think I could handle it. Well, how old were you at the time and how far out of your residency? I was five years out of residency. So what would that have made me? I was about 30, 35-ish. Got it. And I just, I just want everybody to know, I'm sitting here, we're recording this on both video and audio, and I'm looking at Dr. Pensa and she's fine. Okay. She's, she's smiling. <laughs> she looks great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it was a long journey to great though. Right. It was, a, it was a long journey to okay. That's basically what I talk about in the podcast. The long and the short of it is I eventually went to trial in 2011 and that trial lasted four weeks. I won, but I will say fairly that I was a bit of a disaster. I was a terrible defendant. I required all sorts of handholding because no one really had ever talked to me about how to emotionally handle this at all. And I was just, I was just sort of an emotional mess and I just wanted the whole thing to go away. I was very defensive. Once I sort of had all the experts, both adversarial experts and my own experts reading their opinions, I just became very defensive. I felt like this shouldn't be happening. I lost all sorts of faith in my choice of career. I didn't want to be a doctor anymore, but I had to show up because I had big loans. I didn't want to see patients anymore. I was afraid. I just was convinced that every single one of them was just another opportunity to either actually hurt someone, make a mistake. That was always looming too, or to be sued if there was a bad outcome. I was, I was in a very, very bad place. And that had all sorts of ripple effects with my own personal health, lots of physical symptoms, Definitely took a toll on my marriage and my children. I was completely impatient with them. You're under a very large amount of psychological stress about which you don't talk to anyone and which generates in you a great deal of shame and sort of an existential crisis about your life's work and what you've dedicated yourself to. It comes out in very unhealthy ways. And I will readily admit it came out in a lot of unhealthy ways. And so even though I did win at trial in 2011, I didn't want to go back to work. It was a very, we call it a pyrrhic victory, I guess is the word for it. Physicians never win for real litigation. You either lose it, you lose less. And so I lost less. I just was still so lost. And then sometime after that, I got notice of the plaintiff's intent to appeal, which I hadn't even really thought of as a possibility. And it moved through every level of the courts in Rhode Island. And in 2015, that verdict was overturned. And I found myself heading back to trial. And I just, I did not think I could do it. And um, I did not want to do it. I begged my insurer to settle. I was at a real, 
low point. It was about then that I realized that I was in a bit of trouble finally after the better part of a decade being swallowed quite whole by this. And I came to this moment of of really needing to either succumb or learn to swim. And you know, I actually remember it as this moment when I hung up with this a phone call with my attorney, particularly emotional phone call. And I hung up the phone and I was just, I can picture it still. I just, you know, these great heaving sobs at my kitchen table and I'd become so acquainted with that. And then I just had this, I call it my Scarlet O'Hara moment where I decided like, you know what, you're going to make me go to trial with God as my witness. I am not going to be like this again. I'm not doing this anymore. I cannot be like this anymore. And that was the day that I finally thought, like, maybe somebody out there knows how to do this better than I am doing this. Maybe there's somebody out there that can help me. And that was the day that I started learning. I started learning. I got, there was a few books written about physicians and litigation. I got those. I read them. I got self-help books and I'd never bought one in my life. And it turns out that some of them are pretty good. If you if you take the advice, it's not that hokey. Like if you actually do work, sometimes these things actually help. And so it was one thing after another, these tiny little baby steps of learning how I might find a path to being okay. And the more I learned, the better I felt. And the more changes I started making in my own life, choices that benefited me and my family and our happiness. I have had therapy. I did not officially start therapy then, um, but I did speak to friends who are therapists about this whole process. And it was completely illuminating because I had not been a therapy person. So I have definitely learned the value of therapy the so-called self-help books, thinking and working on you have to improve. Yes, on on you. And this is not. It it really was a, a sea change for me. And I think that a lot of physicians, especially physicians of, I want to say my generation or older, who were taught that to think about medicine differently and our role in medicine as completely self-sacrificial. It felt a little bit like sacrilege to be doing that. Well, and let me let me just ask, because one of the things that I notice and one of the things that I teach in my coaching and my training is that we as physicians are conditioned, conditioned, brainwashed, programmed to, to work with two prime directives. One is acknowledged by everybody. The patient comes first. So when we do something to the patient and it doesn't work out, especially if we miss a diagnosis, even worse, if you were to do a medical error, actually actually commit something that harmed a patient, we're destroyed by that. But the second one is never show weakness. Never do anything that would imply that I'm not superwoman. I'm not completely impenetrable, right? That there's nothing wrong with me. So to what extent, and what happens is you have to also survive a medical education system and a healthcare delivery system that is riddled with bias and discrimination. I stand here as a big old white guy. I haven't had any of that shit. I can get away with stuff that you could never get away with. Because if you're listening on the podcast, Dr. Pensa is a petite, attractive Indian female. 
Fortunately, English is her second language, and she's probably American citizen, yes? I'm an American citizen. I was actually born here, so yeah. Yeah, so you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. But to what, to what extent do you think the super... And she's an ER doc, not a pediatrician, right? I would think that there's a little bit of programming here that would having you deny, I ain't going to read any of those damn self-help books. I'm a doctor for heaven's sake. This bulletproof never show weakness, doggone it, I'm a rock, I'm an island. It took a decade to wear down. Do you think that had anything to do with this? Oh, a thousand percent. A thousand percent. I think that I had like perhaps many children of immigrants who had something to prove and sort of relished the, the proving of things, I think, as I went along, I definitely sort of fit the mold of overachiever, bit of a perfectionist when it came to my to medical practice, wanting to be the smartest kid in the room, and very carefully crafting a persona of this, maybe I'm this petite brown little woman, but I am... Don't mess with me. <laughs> yeah, don't mess with me right? And I'm good at my job. I'm good at what I do. And it took a lot of sort of carefully constructed persona building to get there. But it, it reflected the truth though, right? Because because of those physical characteristics of you as a person going through this system, you had to be twice as good to get half the credit. Well, yeah, I'd like to acknowledge that I think I am good at what I do. And I think I did. It was an achievement for me. But I also think that there is something to be said for the weight of having people second guess you all the time. And nothing brings out imposter syndrome like litigation. You know, because the first thought that you have is, I am not as good at this as I thought I was. And everybody else is going to know it now. And that is really, especially coming back to the point that You've dedicated your life, you've built your whole identity around the building of this bulletproof physician. And when that all comes crumbling down, it's tough. And I, I did not know what to do with that. I, I hadn't the faintest idea what to do with that. And we're not, we don't talk about it. And we're also told not to talk about anything. Once you're sued, that's it. It's supposed to be, you know, lights out. You just, live with it or or not. That is where I was. Again, we can talk about this for hours. It is so complex what happens to the psyche of a physician when they are sued, especially in a case that has a very significant adverse outcome and a 12-year jail. Hang on a second. One, one more quick thing while we're here. You said you actually, and again, this is a, a relatively rare thing for physicians, and it's not because we are stoic. People say physicians are so stoic. No, we're programmed not to ask for help because that could be interpreted as a sign of weakness, especially if you happen to be a surgeon, especially if you happen to not be a big old white guy like me. In any way, I'm a large, old, white, straight, American-born, native English-speaking, cis man. Well, I would argue that it's very hard for white men to ask for help too. Oh, absolutely. The reasons behind that may be different. What I have found to be a fairly universal thing among physicians is that whatever our paths to becoming a physician, and those are varied and complex, whatever those are, it's fairly universal that asking for help is is really difficult. Yes, it's the never show weakness. Because again, if you were to ever ask for help from an attending or from a colleague in your residency program, 
that would pierce the persona of being self-contained and having it, your shit all together. And I find that that is even more of a persona, even more of challenging if you don't happen to be a big old white guy like me. Now, fortunately for you, I don't sense there was any gender or other bias present in the lawyer's decision to sue you. It was simply a numbers game, I would think. I don't know. It's, I think about that sometimes when, and we can talk about this again some other time, I think that most plaintiff's attorneys use the deposition as a way to size you up. And so, because they won't have seen, I mean, maybe they, nowadays they will have Googled you and seen your picture and all sorts of other stuff. But in 2006, like, yeah, they probably would have found some stuff and thought like, oh, okay, maybe would it be far better for them if I did have an accent? Probably. Would it have been better for them if I want to, if I wore a hijab? Probably. So they, they'll sort of size you up at deposition and decide, like, is this a person that winner, winner, chicken dinner? But at trial, the jury may have their biases against. So they'll work all the way. I don't think I gave them much in that department, but I was sort of an emotional mess. <laughs> so that I did try. My deposition performance was okay. I had this junior attorney assigned to me to teach me how to give a deposition because I was awful. And it turned into this My Fair Lady scenario where he was just teaching me how to behave. I think I, I did a, a fair enough job at that. Yes, all of those things were to be considered. When plaintiffs decide, are they pushing for settlement? Are they trying to bring you to trial? All sorts of things that have nothing to do with your quality of care come into play. You won. They appealed. It took four more years. It was overturned. Your company decided to go back to trial again. Let's put a bow on this. And again, you're sitting here in front of me as a recalcitrant, innocent person. So please put a bow on it. Well, what happened was I mentioned that somewhere around that time of the overturning of the verdict, I started to learn how to save myself, basically. And so the person that wound up going back to trial a second time in 2018 was a very different person than had gone to trial in 2011. And I had the benefit of understanding the system of having talked to lots of people about uh, what was happening, about learning how to handle it. I had used knowledge as a tool to mitigate my anxiety. I had managed my emotions around it. I was now a very good defendant. And I had also worked on finding ways to enjoy what I did in medicine again. And I really started as many people do when they find their way back with very small things. For me, it wasn't in the trauma bay. It was in these everyday interactions with patients where you felt like you made a little bit of a difference and made somebody just feel a little bit better and alleviated a little bit of suffering. There was an, an essay and people ask me all the time who wrote it. I don't know anymore, but it was one of these trade newspapers. And it was an essay just about the spiritual satisfaction of caring for society's forgotten in the emergency department. You know, we are the people who care for the only people who do sometimes the chronically homeless, the alcoholics, the schizophrenics, the, you know, and you may be the one person who was kind to them in a given day. And I cut that out and I carried it around with me for a long time as just this reminder that what I do matters. And that brought a little spark back. And then I started, I made bigger changes. I joined the academic faculty at Brown, somewhere around the same time. I started learning new skills, podcasting, blogging, that kind of thing. I became sort of an educational technology 
person. And with that, I started having ideas because I was already thinking then, even before the second trial, I was already thinking that now in my new role as an educator with some new skills and with this real desire to make something meaningful happen out of all of this mess, not even knowing what the outcome of the second trial would be. But that was when I started laying the groundwork for the podcast. And I actually started doing interviews with other physicians and went on social media to find physicians who were willing to talk anonymously about their experiences in litigation and what it did to them as physicians and as human beings, not about their cases, but about what it did to them right? and how they coped, which was not something anyone was talking about. And so I started gathering these. I knew I couldn't release anything until after the trial. So I started gathering these interviews with this plan in place of what I was going to be doing. And then six months before the second trial, I was doing pretty well, but I wanted to put a pin on all the interviewing because being immersed 24-7 in that world while having a trial coming up was probably not the right headspace to be in. But I knew I needed something to help me get through those last few months. And so I was I was looking for something. I, I figured I knew it when I saw it, but I was open to something to keep my mind occupied with something that wasn't about medical malpractice. It came in the form of an email from a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, who had participated in this thing last year. I got an email about a charity in Rhode Island called Dancing with the Doctors. And I was going to delete it again. Um, and <laughs> then I saw, and I'd, I'd seen this in the past. This was like the eighth year this was happening. And it's a program where they match physicians with professional ballroom dancers. And you train in a dancing with the stars type way for a big gala with like a thousand people. And the, the main objective is fundraising for a medically related charity. And so that year it was the Island Free Clinic. And so you, the physicians compete not only in dancing, but also in fundraising. And it's just, a, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful, wonderful program. But I before had been like, that's great, but no way. Like I, I have no time and I, yeah, it's great, but I, I, that's not me. And then I was going to delete it again. And then I saw the date of the gala was a week before my, originally it was actually three days before and then my trial got moved, but it wound up being a week before my second trial was set to start. And I thought that maybe this was the thing. And so I filled out the form and I sent it in and I had a little bit of a like, oh my God, what did I just do? <laughs> I was single-mindedly focused on winning this thing. <laughs> so, and if not winning it, but then raising enough money to, you know, to clinch some kind of fundraising award. And so I trained with this, he was like the three-time ballroom dancing champion of the Czech Republic. I mean, when I say this guy can dance, like nothing I've ever seen in my life. It was unbelievable. Oh, wow. And so I trained with this person for four months and shook down everyone I knew for money going back to like high school. <laughs> I mean, I really, I really worked it. I don't run marathons. I'm not one of those people asking for like five bucks for my whatever walk I'm doing. I don't usually do that. But I was like, I'm going through it. Every single contact I have. I was a thousand times more nervous about the ballroom dancing competition than I was about going to trial. Good. <laughs> but no, in, in a great way. And I was very open and honest about why I was doing it. So my whole emergency department, the staff, they were so into it. And I would post my progress on social media and I'd see the videos and they wound up a third of our staff came 
they rented this limo that had like a bar and a pole and it was like a 40 minute ride to where the gala was. They were ready to have fun. They were like red carpet ready, totally fun. And it was honestly like one of the greatest nights of my life. It was just so fun. I I danced third and then it was over with and I just partied with everybody else. Family was there. I felt like I did a good job and I won, but I raised $25,000. Wow. And the total take that night was like $130,000 for the free clinic. It was magnificent. And something I would never have done, never have done if it weren't. And I'm not saying that it was a nice thing to get sued so that I could do that. But when I look at it, I am legit proud of myself. I, I am like proud of myself that I did that. It's changed the way I think about myself and what I can do and what I can recover from and as, as my lawyer called it, he called it a very fine lemonade. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. And so by the time you had won the fundraising prize and you had completed your dancing contest, what was it like then to go from that triumph into the trial? I was, as I said, a very different person for the second trial. And I had practiced and prepared for that role as well. You never know the outcome when you go to trial. It's, it's completely unpredictable. But I went in thinking I was as well prepared as I could possibly have been for that role. The same emergency department staff who had come to the gala came to trial. They would sit in the benches and be very supportive during the breaks and tell me that you're better than that. We've got your back. We've got your back. This is all baloney, which was incredibly meaningful. And because one thing that you really, among the many things that suffer with during this is the fear of the loss of respect of our colleagues. And so to have people tell you, like, we think you're a great doctor. You just got to come back to work. This is all whatever it is. Just like wrap this stuff up and then come back. Incredibly meaningful. I testified really well. I invited my residents to come to watch because I felt like they needed to know. They should see this. Honestly, only a handful took me up on it. I asked a couple, like, why didn't you come? And they were like, I just, it would frighten me. Yeah, they're scared to death is why they didn't. They were scared to come. They were scared to come, which I think says a lot, but that's a whole other conversation. But of the few who did, actually, I think they got a lot out of it. But even on the home front, I wanted to be, um, so my children now have grown up for, they were teenagers now, and they had grown up for you know, 12 years with this dysfunctional family member. I know we're looking at me to know how I handled it. And I wanted to be this model of grace under pressure for them. It may not have been perfect, but I did okay. I think that a lot of my learning how to handle myself and take care of myself, I have three daughters. And I, I was pregnant with one of them at the time I saw this patient. By the time it wrapped up, she was in middle school. And the other two were older. This is not an isolated event. There's so much carryover to every other facet of our lives and how we react to it and take care of ourselves in these moments is not only for ourselves. It's for if you have children, you are modeling a behavior that is incredibly important for them to absorb. I think it was a two and a half. It was a much shorter trial this time and the demands were lower and, and I did win uh, a second time and then they declined to appeal. And so for the first time, in all those 12 years, I was finally done. Yay. <laughs> Yay. A very different person. Definitely a, a stronger and more resilient person for it. I would not go through it again. But I can say that I feel like 
I took something positive out of it. Yes. And but I also accept that I'm like not good. I'm kind of doomed. I've been practicing for 20 something years and that was that was the one. It happens to most of us every seven or eight years. And so I shouldn't be surprised. And I probably will. I won't be happy about it. I will be a very different person when I receive notice the next time because there probably will be a next time. So I have three quick questions to put a bow on this particular conversation because we're going to have several more. First of all, you said you found some self-help books and some of them weren't too bad. What's your favorite self-help book? So as it pertains to litigation in particular, my favorite probably was, and there's some layers behind it. There's a book called When Good Doctors Get Sued. And it was meaningful to me for a few reasons. One, another physician gave it to me. He knew what was happening, but didn't really know how to talk to me about it, but clearly could tell that I was suffering. I didn't know him very well. One day, just after a shift, he's like, you know, I've, I've had this with me at work for a while and I've been meaning to give it to you. Just maybe read this. That was one of the first books that I, so I've had it for a little while. It lived in the drawer of my bedside table. I didn't read it, but the title of it was really important to me of when good doctors get sued. And so it was the first time I'd had this, someone wrote a book about good doctors getting sued. So it probably happens that you could be a good doctor and get sued. It had to be a year that it was in that drawer. And I didn't take it out. I knew it was there. I would see the title when I'd open the drawer for anything else. And then I'd shut it. I have no idea what I could unpack that with a therapist. Like, Why couldn't you read the book? But eventually I did. I took it out. It was the first book that I read. It opened the door to finding other books, to accepting that I could read something like this and I would feel understood and that there were things that I could take out of it that were perhaps more universal than I thought and that I wasn't some sort of freak for feeling the way I felt. And because a lot of it too was this feeling of like, why can't I just get over this? what is wrong with me? Like I just over all sorts of stuff all the time. Like we carry all sorts of emotional burdens as physicians. And what we do is we, you know, we deal with it, right? It just, that's what we do. And I certainly had plenty of emotionally catastrophic events at work that I had contended with and felt like I processed, okay, why could I not get over this? And so the self-flagellation about it finally stopped where I started to realize, like, this is not like other stressors. This is different. Yeah, the terrible outcomes at work are about somebody else's terrible outcome. This is about you. And the other thing that I noticed was you said after the dancing contest that the trial started and you felt like you had prepared for that. And then you used the R word, prepared for that role. And from my perspective, I'm sitting here in the catbird seat watching this all go down. I'm noticing you were destroyed by the first round of testimony. You were fused with it. It was you. It wasn't a role. It was you going through the first trial. And you had done the work to separate yourself into your observer self and the one that was standing in the dock. You saw this as a role. That healthy separation was a big piece of it. And then my last question for this particular conversation is, okay, 12 years later, You've been through the catharsis. You've put this episode of stress, burnout, imposter syndrome to its highest and best use to wind you back into a more purposeful existence, to point you in a, on a path with more purpose. After all of this time, to win the case and they don't appeal, 
how was it to be in the wake of the apparent conclusion of this chapter in your life? The answer to that is a little complex because it, you would think that the only answer would be relief. No, I don't think that. That's why I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was relief. <laughs> because you've already said, hey, if it wasn't for this case, I wouldn't have done the dancing with the doctors thing and had the triumph of that experience. Yeah, it was pretty complex. I mean, obviously, I was very happy to have won. And I was very happy to finally be able to stop worrying about the litigation itself. But it had wrought what it had wrought. So I did take a little time, I think I gave myself the luxury of some self reflection, introspection, figure out, okay, what will I do now? Because this has been now like such a huge part of my life taking up a lot of real estate in my life. And now that that is over, do I just shut the door and say, well, like, let's just pretend that never happened, which is super tempting and also impossible. Yes. And impossible. <laughs> Very tempting, though. Yeah, I mean, I, there, there are some people who probably would do a pretty good job of just pretending just it comes out as it comes out. But I know some physicians who the things that they just put a lid on and squeeze tight, it's pretty impressive. I didn't think that that was going to make me feel whole in any way. That was when I decided, okay, now it's time to get to work on this podcast. I'm just going to keep everything really fresh in my memory. I actually had kept audio diaries through it. I just voice memos while waiting for certain things. And so I actually have this record of how I was feeling, what I was thinking, knowing that I might use some of those for the podcast. And I don't use many of them, but I did, as the time went on, I would listen to them and just and think about what it felt like to be in that role. Because it's easy to forget, I think, as time blunts things. But I, I decided it was time to get working on the podcast. And that even if nobody ever listened to it, it was going to be something for me. I was going to work on my my audio editing and make it a creative project. And I set out to make the thing that I wish I'd had when I started. There you go. Yes, exactly. Right. So and, and again, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about your podcast, Doctors and Litigation, the L word. It's magnificent. It's a self-contained diary and a community of people taking you through everything you should learn about litigation, but they didn't teach you in medical school and residency. It's magnificently edited. You can get it wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Obviously, a labor of love an audio journal of your journey and connection to other folks that have been through similar journeys. It's just magnificent. So if you're listening now, go subscribe now. I saw one of the reviews said, I devoured this whole podcast. And how many episodes are there? Like There will be 12 in the end. I have one last one that I've been sitting on during COVID. I just didn't. The last one's going to be called Life After Litigation. And I have there you go. all of the things that I want to put into it sort of teed up. I just haven't done it yet. I was waiting for me to have the bandwidth emotionally to deal with it and for listeners to have the bandwidth to deal with it emotionally. And we're probably getting there. So hopefully that would be out in the next couple of months. Well, it would potentially be something you could interpret as an external sign of closure. And it certainly is bittersweet to go on a journey of this magnificence and this impact and think that there's an end. <laughs> that may be part of it. Like you said, what do I do now? 
Well, what you do is you live, right? You keep living and this is a piece of your life. Just magnificent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. We are going to have you back. Absolutely. And uh, one of the things I want to talk about in a future episode is litigation concerns, specifically in the era of COVID and its aftermath. Because I think you and I, I saw one of your podcasts and have spoken about this back in March of uh, 2020, that one of the waves of impact in COVID is going to be an enormous wave of post-COVID litigation from a number of different directions. Uh, Sad but true here in the United States of America. Dr. Pensa, is there anything else in this episode you'd like to share with our listeners? I would just like to remind everybody that you and your life and your practice are more than any one case. By one overarching lesson, I would let it be that. You have a body of work. This is one example. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you view this journey in your life, you didn't do anything wrong. But even in not doing anything wrong, you learn some great lessons. And you're a great example, mentor, teacher for all of us. So so thank you so much for your time and your energy here today. Dr. Gita Pensa, MD. Let's give you the correct title, right? You are Associate Professor at Brown. Podcaster extraordinaire. Again, the podcast is Doctors and Litigation, the L word. Go subscribe to it and we'll see you again down the road for another podcast episode. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Right on. Dyke Drummond at thehappymd.com in Seattle, Washington. That's the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Have a great rest of your day.